0: I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at IKAR in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. This week's Parsha, Lech Lecha, is where the Abraham story begins. So it's a, it's a big deal. This is the beginning of our tradition. And it starts with the great call from God, Lech Lecha, go forth. And Abraham goes. And so the early stories are about how and where Abraham, who was called Avram then, how and where he goes forth. But the thing is, it reads a little like a travel journal. I mean, we get these these little details of the itinerary, and it's not so clear why, after this big dramatic opening, why we need to be following Abraham around, tracing his every move in this very precise way. So today, we're going to focus on one particular phrase, one big idea that comes up in the commentaries on this week's Parsha. And it's an idea that the rabbis use to explain the deeper meaning of some of those little details that we find in this week's Parsha. But it's an idea that, that has the potential to change the way we read the whole narrative of the Torah. Okay, the phrase is The actions of the parents are a sign for the children. The most famous expression of this idea comes to us from the 14th century commentary of Rabbi Moses Nachmanides. That's Nachmanides, not Maimonides. Another great medieval scholar from Spain. He was a philosopher, he was a, a legal scholar and he was a Kabbalist, but he also wrote a commentary on the Torah that is truly one of the masterpieces of the genre. So Abraham is going forth, and and in particular one of the first places he goes is down to Egypt. And what Nachmanides points out is obvious to anyone who reads through Genesis and, and gets to Exodus, which is that just as Abraham goes down to Egypt, so too will the children of Israel one day go down to Egypt. So there's a foreshadowing here. But what he says about that repetition is, is kind of startling. I will tell you a principle, he says, that you must understand throughout all the upcoming stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a great concept that our rabbis articulated in brief language. They said, Kol la'avot, siman labanim. Everything that happens to the parents is a sign for the children. So, he says, when the Torah goes on and on with the stories of the journeys they took or the wells they dug or the other events of their lives, one might think that these are unnecessary details which have no meaning. But all of them are meant to teach us about the future. For when something happens to one of the three forefathers, we can understand from it that something has been decreed upon their offspring. Okay, he says everything that happens to the parents is a sign for the children. That's become a traditional saying. Usually the phrasing is ma seha avot, siman la banim. The actions of the parents is a sign for the children. But what does that mean? A sign, a siman. One way to understand it is that the early generations set an example, and their descendants will or should follow that example. So your parents' actions are a sign for you. Do as your ancestors did. But that would be just learning lessons from the past. Nachmanides seems to be saying something more. He uses the language of a decree, remember? Like there's something predictive about studying the actions of the earlier generations because there's something inevitable. Like you can expect these actions to be repeated by future generations. So one way to think about this is that this is the way families work. And we tend to replay the patterns set by our parents. Families have repeating traumas, repeating successes. Families can replicate cycles of love or cycles of violence. And I think most psychologists will tell you that that's true. We, we can inherit trauma or we can inherit joy in thriving. And there's a, a religious version of this concept The classic phrasing is, the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the children. We find language like that in the Torah, in, in the Ten Commandments even. And the opposite idea is there in the Torah as well, which is that one can inherit the merits of one's ancestors. That maybe God will redeem us because God remembers how great our ancestors were. So maybe it's in that sense that the Actions of the parents are a sign for the children, signaling what reward or, or punishment is to come. But still, Nachman seems to be saying something even bolder, which is that in the case of Abraham and, and Sarah and later Isaac and Jacob, the great the great patriarchs and matriarchs, those patterns were not just set psychologically or religiously, but metaphysically. That is, whatever Abraham did imprinted itself onto existence. Whatever he did somehow shaped the very contours of reality so that everyone who came after him was destined to retrace the arc of his journey. Imagine that as Abraham travels, everywhere he goes, a path is created behind him. And those who come after him will find themselves walking that same path, falling into his footsteps without even knowing what they're doing. It's as if Abraham carved grooves in time, and we keep falling into those grooves, like a needle falls into the groove of a record that plays over and over, echoing throughout the universe forever. Now, whether or not you believe that, it certainly does a good job of accounting for the way some of the narrative themes that run through Exodus seem to be seeded in this week's Parsha. Because it isn't just that he went down to Egypt, but that every little detail of that journey seems to foretell some major aspect of the future descent into Egypt and the future exodus from Egypt. So in chapter 12, in just the course of of 12 or 13 verses, we're told that in verse 10, there was a famine in the land and that Abraham went down to Egypt because of the famine and It's going to be a famine that later compels Jacob and his sons to journey down to Egypt to find sustenance. When Abraham and Sarah get to Egypt, the Egyptians were told, saw how very beautiful Sarah was, and she was taken into Pharaoh's palace. Okay, Sarah is taken captive in Pharaoh's house, just as Joseph who is the first one of Jacob's children to be taken down to Egypt, Joseph also becomes an object of sexual desire as soon as he arrives and is consequently imprisoned in the house of Pharaoh. Okay, then in verse 17, we're told that God afflicted Pharaoh and his household with with great plagues, negaim gedolim, on account of Sarai, the wife of Avram. Now, that parallel you just can't miss. God brings great plagues to force the release of Sarah, just as God will famously bring the 10 plagues upon Egypt to liberate the Israelites, concluding with one that, just as it does here, afflicts Pharaoh's own household. OK, then finally, Pharaoh relents and sends Abraham off with his wife, the just as the Pharaoh in Exodus will eventually relent and send out all of the Israelites. That's the language that Moses keeps using, shalach send out my people. And when they leave, we're told that Abraham was weighted down by riches in cattle and silver and gold. And so too, the Israelites, when they leave Egypt, will be leaving, we're told, with riches of silver and gold. All of this major foreshadowing in the course of just one chapter is, is pretty remarkable. The actions of the parents, indeed. And it's not just here with Abraham that we can do this kind of pattern spotting. In fact, we'll see these kinds of stories, stories which echo earlier stories throughout the Torah. So we'll see stories of sibling rivalry generation after generation. We'll see people meet and fall in love while drawing water from a well again and again. So what does all that mean? What do we do with it? Uh, I don't know. I'm not here to say there, there are the psychological explanations, the behavioral cultural and, and the metaphysical explanations. But my point is that these connections are here and we're left to wonder and to interpret, and to make meaning of them. And what this tells us is, it tells us something about the way this book is written. The stories of the Torah aren't just a collection of ancient tales, moral parables, to be read one at a time, each on its own. No, these tales are, are woven together in certain patterns, with recurring themes, recurring images, and recurring problems. That's part of what makes this such a rich narrative. The stories seem to be aware of one another, some anticipating what's to come and some calling back to what was because the storyteller knows what they're doing, setting this up, creating these echoes and expecting us to hear them. The Torah is saying, pay attention, remember what you're seeing here and keep your eyes open because you may well see the same thing again later. And and when you do, you'll have to ask, what's the connection? How does one story affect the other? Is the character in the Torah deliberately referencing the earlier story? Or does the narrator of the Torah just want us, the readers, to see the reference and to reflect on it and to make meaning of it? When a book is written in this way, embedded with these patterns, but without making the connections explicit and without giving us the meaning of those connections, then we have to become active participants in the telling of the story. We have to draw the lines of connection, fill in the gaps, explain the patterns. We become active readers, active interpreters. And that's what the Torah wants from us. The Torah wants us to become so actively engaged in the story that we immerse ourselves in it. We become a part of it. We go on the journey with our ancestors, retracing their steps. And then when we read through the Torah every year, we begin to see the patterns even before they appear. We begin anticipating all their next moves. When God says to Abraham, lech lecha, go forth, we go with him. When he goes down to Egypt, we go with him. And we know that there's a groove being carved here. So when the children of Israel go down to Egypt, we go with them and we feel the pattern. We relive it just as the children of our ancestors did. In the process of reading and rereading, these stories then become markers for us. Shared reference points in our collective psyche that help us orient ourselves in our tradition and in our history. And then we begin to find echoes from our shared stories in our own stories. We begin to see the patterns, the images and the themes from the Torah's narrative in our own lives. And then these ancient stories help us to interpret and make meaning of our own stories. The actions of our ancestors have in fact become a sign for us. We, the readers of the Torah, we are the children of the Torah. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pete by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot, and see you next week.